0: and take your seats. Man, welcome back to Dr. Church this Sunday. Ooh, chattery. Even more than first service, I love it, man. I love, I love this sound. Hey guys, if we hadn't got a chance to meet yet, my name is Jared. I get to work on staff here at Dr. Church. Um, so glad to see you. Um, yeah, if we haven't met, please find me in the foyer. We'd love to get to know your name. Love to get to hear a little bit of your story and I can share some of mine with you as well. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to bring the word to us this morning. Uh, my job on staff is really to do just like a litany of things. I do some things with our college ministry, the Salt Company. Uh, do some things on the community side as well, local missions, docs and men. If you're going to come next Saturday, come out, man. I'll be there. Uh, it'll be a really good time. Cool. That was even louder than Nate's announcement. Come on, fellas. Yeah, 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 yeah. So not that's exciting, guys. Um, I want to jump right in this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark uh, in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out and you can meet me there. But before I jump into the message, I have this map I want to put up behind us on the screen. And I think this will be helpful for us, particularly today as we go through this part of the Gospel of Mark. uh, Because Jesus is going to be doing a lot of travel. Right now, Jesus has been currently mostly in the middle purple area there in Galilee doing ministry amongst the Jews. And in this text today, he's actually going to be going on a journey, and we're going to be seeing him go to the western side, up the Mediterranean Sea, towards Tyre, and even continue up towards Sidon. And I think this is significant for us today. Because he'll be making this big jump in geographical area, signifying that he's making a big effort to reach somebody else. Not the Jews, but the Gentiles. People outside the promise of God. In our last several verses today, he'll be in a completely different region. You see there's a third dot down there, and he'll be coming around. We learned from previous weeks that he won't be coming back through Galilee, but he'll go around Galilee and he'll be coming down to the Decapolis around to another Gentile territory. <laughs> this is my brother in law, it's not that weird, guys, I promise. Okay, how are we doing? Good? Out of boy, out of boy. Give it up. So I wanted to highlight this for us. Because it's a significant mark in Jesus's journey. And not only that, but it's significant in unfolding the plan of salvation as we know it. So as we get into the text, he's actually going to run into a, a few people who, who 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 don't really agree with this expanding of Jesus's salvation narrative. Some religious elites who would rather hold on to their own tradition than believe in Jesus and his mission to quite literally save the world. So we're going to jump right in. You should be in your Bibles at Mark chapter 7 verse 1, and I'm going to start reading for us right there. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of their elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So you can see here that this tradition that these people hold right, is, is, is highly ritualistic. Jesus is being approached by these people and it clarifies in the text, right, what it means by defiled hands. It's unclean, it's unwashed hands. The text tells us that Pharisees and Jews do not eat unless their hands are washed properly according to the tradition of the elders. And you can see that they wash a lot of other different things as well. But one of the main things, the main parts of this ritual was the washing of hands. And it's important to note that, that this ritual wasn't included in the original Law, right? Back in Leviticus, when the when the law is laid out, this, this idea of ritualistic cleansing, this was meant for a specific people in Israel and a specific people only, and that people was the priest. But as we get to this part in the New Testament, the Pharisees and the scribes, what they've done is they've elongated that law and said, "Hey, all the people of Israel have to abide by this." It's not written law; it's oral tradition that was codified in the third century to be included in the original written version of the oral tradition, the Mishnah. And the goal of these interpretations weren't to be close to God. They were to control and regulate every aspect of Jewish life. But as they looked to control everything around them and as they smothered their lives in tradition, they couldn't even see who it was that was standing right in front of them. Look at verse five with me. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? If you guys have been tracking along with us in the book of Mark, you know that these type of questions are par for the course for the Pharisees. The observation here from the Pharisees turned to inquiry from the Pharisees. They observed the difference in tradition and lifestyle by Jesus and his followers, and now they questioned Jesus and his followers. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? As you hear this question, you might remember that there were some similar questions way back in chapter 2. We went through this. And they came to Jesus and they asked these questions. Remember, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why don't you fast like the Pharisees and the scribes? The Pharisees come to Jesus with these questions and they're not asking him to gain insight. No, they're asking him to trap him, right? So that they can catch him in a lie or catch catch him in blaspheming. So the question posed here in this text has that same intent. They observed that Jesus was leading his disciples differently, not according to the tradition of the elders. And they concluded that if they are disobeying the tradition of the elders, then they must be in sin. But here's Jesus' response. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. Hey, this doesn't sound like quite your friendly neighborhood Jesus anymore, does it? See, this is Jesus with some teeth on him. If there's one thing that Jesus didn't really mess with in the Scripture in the New Testament, it's this, Hypocrisy. He receives the question, and he goes straight to Scripture, the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 13, so he could pierce straight to their hearts, and he says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then he gives them an example. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say... If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Now, this needs to be unpacked a little bit, right? Like, what does it mean that something is Corban? It kind of defines itself here, right? That it's something that is given to God. You see, this law laid out by Moses to honor your father and mother, right, had some kind of provision uh, in it as well, If your father and mother got to old age, it was responsibility for the children to come alongside and provide them ways that they could healthcare care, financial, whatever ways possible. But what happened was the Jews in this time, they took that law and they made provision for it, and they said, "If I make my things, the things that I have, if I make them my money, if I make them Corbin, I can say they 're dedicated to God." And if they're dedicated to God, now I have a loophole to not have to help my family. And Jesus says, when you do this, you are making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things that you do. I know this can sound kind of outdated or whatever, right? Like because we don't have any laws surrounding Corbin now in our day, in our 21st century America. But get this idea. Jesus is saying everything you thought you knew is wrong. Imagine telling Jeff Bezos he knew nothing about business. <laughs> or Mark Zuckerberg, he knew nothing about social media. Or Beyonce, she knew nothing about music. <laughs> Right, this is what Jesus was doing to these scribes and Pharisees. Based on your tradition, you don't care about the word of God. You only care about yourselves. See, he was saying this to the Pharisees, but if we're honest, he could probably say something similar to us. Just think about yourself individually, right? The last week, the last month. I'm guilty of this, like how many times, even just recently, do we set aside the word of God to justify our self-centeredness or fuel our self-righteousness and serve our self-interest in the name of our own pride and our own convictions? Or corporately, like, listen, Doxa, If what brings us here to worship and gather on Sundays is merely our collective understanding or our similar political beliefs, and we have all the same thoughts and all the same convictions, we have to really ask who are we coming into this place to worship? Is it Jesus or is it ourselves? See, Jesus is saying that he and the word of God has to be primary in our thoughts and our convictions and be the primary reason why we gather, not ourselves. So, what is Jesus' answer to all this? He appeals back to the question of being unclean. Look at verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. The Pharisees should have heard this. And been hurting on the inside. We have to ask this question, why does Jesus give this long and elaborated answer to the question of tradition? And here it is, and this is my main point for the text today. Elevating tradition over God numbs us to the mission of God. Elevating tradition over God numbs us to the mission of God. You see, what Jesus is pointing out is that the tradition of the Pharisees does more than deal with this idea of unclean hands and unclean food, but it bleeds into this idea of unclean people. See, the mission of God is a redeeming mission. At the core of what Jesus came to do is more than die. Yes, he came to die for sin, but he also came to redeem a people, and he came to rebuild a family, and that family now extended beyond who the Pharisees thought it should extend to, the Gentiles. In these first 23 verses, Jesus rejects the Pharisees' heart behind having clean hands. He made all foods clean, and he changed the game on what makes a clean or unclean person. It's no longer what goes into a person that makes them unclean. It's what comes out of a person. I don't know if you caught this. But Jesus is making a radical and revolutionary claim here. Jesus is turning religion on its head and making this profound claim that true religion and spiritual transformation is not expressed from the outside in, but from the inside out. And the rest of this text will deal with just that, right? Verses 24 to 37 will put what Jesus was just talking about right here in these first 23 verses into action. Let's look at verse 24. And from there he arose away from Galilee And went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, out west, up the Mediterranean Sea, to our first city. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus takes what he was saying and he turns it into action by leaving Galilee, a predominantly Jewish area, and going with his disciples to Tyre and Sidon, the land of the Gentiles. He was trying to keep this low profile, but this woman found him and she came with a request and she said, Jesus, my daughter has a demon. Would you please heal her? I want us to kind of get this scene really quick. See, if you were paying attention, I skipped over a part of the verse in verse 26. I did this on purpose (laughs) to show that it could be easily overlooked, but to come back to it to highlight its importance, right? You see, this woman comes to fall at the feet of Jesus and she's begging for a healing, but there's something else about her. Mark notes her ethnicity. She's a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And I think this is important for us to note, that in a day and age like today where we're fearful of drawing attention to ethnicity and other cultural descriptors, we have to recognize that the Bible doesn't shy away from these things. And in fact, if more than anything, it leans into it. Not to show us any type of favoritism or hierarchy or privilege, but to show the depth and breadth of God's reach to gather his people. Real cultural distinctions have real cultural implications and it's important to note so that we can tangibly feel and see the power of the spirit working in our midst. See the gospel doesn't destroy culture, it redeems culture. So we see this woman with these cultural descriptions and if you understand the context, these descriptions would have forbidden her from ever approaching Jesus. First, she's a woman. It would have been completely unacceptable for a Gentile woman to approach a Jewish rabbi in this time period. And second, she was a Gentile. We were just talking about ceremonial washings and cleansing among Jews by which the Pharisees determined who was clean and who wasn't. But to the Jews, Gentiles, it didn't matter what kind of washings they did. They couldn't become clean, period. To the Jews, Gentiles were innately unclean simply because of their position in life. They were unclean by birth, making them untouchable and unapproachable. In other words, this woman shouldn't have stood a chance. She was pagan to the core, an idol worshiper from the pagan capital of the eastern world. So how does Jesus respond to this woman in light of what he just told the Pharisees? I want to look at a parallel account really quick to shed some light on this for us. In Matthew 15, if you're a quick Bible flipper, you can flip there. I don't have these on the screen. It tells this same story in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 22, but it's being told from a bit of a different perspective. And it says this, I'm going to read it for us. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And so we want to know how Jesus responds. In our Mark narrative, we get a response, but in this Matthew narrative, something unique happens here. It says that Jesus did not answer her a word. This woman comes to him, begging him to heal her daughter. We know that Jesus can do it, and Jesus is silent. See, this is confusing. For me, I have to ask Jesus, you were just talking all that talk about people and cleanliness. Are you going back on your word? And if you look further in that narrative in Matthew into verse 23, it says that even his disciples came and they begged him saying, Jesus, would you just send her away? For she is crying out after us. Like the disciples were there just a couple verses ago, listening with the Pharisees on what Jesus was saying, making all foods clean, nullifying all rituals, <laughs> making all people clean, and yet here's the disciples' response. And I can't help but wonder if the disciples mistook Jesus' silence for their cue to scold this woman. She's loud. She's obnoxious. Jesus, she doesn't deserve to be here. And I wonder if any of you have ever felt this same thing. Like maybe you've experienced being in desperate need and you sought out the people or the place that you knew could help. And you were expecting someone to pull you up by your hand or you were expecting someone to counsel you through your thoughts or listen to your concerns. But instead, what you were met with was a wall that made you feel unworthy, outcasted, or undignified. See, we can sense that this is this mood in this story. But if you're anything like me, you got to be conflicted. Like, it it isn't supposed to be like this. Let's keep reading in Mark verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, most pastors would probably skip over this verse. We're not going to skip over this verse. It seems like this woman can't catch a break. (laughs) Right, First, the silence from Jesus and the language of dismissal from the disciples, and now it looks like she's being insulted by Jesus. But I think we have to look a little bit deeper because she's not really being insulted in this text here, and, and, and here's why. What Jesus is doing, I believe, is giving a parable to help the disciples and this woman understand his mission. Remember, part of the reason why Jesus came to this region was to demonstrate why tradition doesn't save and he does this by mentioning the children and the bread and the dog. First, he mentions the children, which symbolizes the Jews simply to highlight the priority of his mission. If you know the scriptures, Jesus had a target audience. Let, yes, he came to save the world, but he came primarily to the lost people of Israel, the children of promise. Second, he mentions the bread, which is the metaphor for the Messiah's blessing. Last week, we heard the story about Jesus feeding the 5,000, which showed that Jesus was the exact blessing that they were looking for. And we'll hear about it again next week in the feeding of the 4,000. And then third, he uses this term, dogs. This was a common term Jews used to describe Gentiles. And when this term was used, it was often a derogatory term, like a scavenger or a stray dog. It wasn't like the house-type dog. Now, if you've ever been to a remote place or a rough area, like I've seen some of these dogs around some small cities overseas. I spent six years over there. And when you see dogs like this, right, you know what I'm talking about. you got three things on your mind. <laughs> Whose dog is this? Why doesn't it have a leash? And how can I stay out of its way? This is how the Gentiles were often seen. However, the term Jesus uses here for dog is a little bit different. If you look at how you can translate the word dog in the Greek, there's two ways. One that translates, yes, to the scraggly scavenging I'm just describing here. And one that translates to something more like a house pet. And the house pet form is what Jesus was using here in this text. But take this how you want it. (laughs) I don't think it's any consolation. right? We, we can't really get this twisted. This wasn't really any compliment to begin with. I don't think it matters if you call someone a sheep doodle or a Wattweiler, right? You're still calling them a dog. And it still hurts all the same. And now what about the woman's response? See, in one sense, she could have responded with hurt and been like, Jesus, how dare you call me a dog? and left without receiving her blessing. Or she could have thrown hypocrisy in his face like, Jesus, you say you're about everybody. You say tradition isn't king, and you came here to prove that, but your true colors are showing once you actually got here. She could have said either one of these things, but she doesn't say either one of these things. And as we look at her real answer unfold, we actually see that Jesus wasn't trying to insult her at all, but he was opening a door for her to understand a parable, and she sees the opportunity, and she runs right through it. And I think we see the first hint of this in verse 27. Look back at this with me. The woman comes to fall at Jesus' feet. She wants healing for her daughter. Look at this. And Jesus says to her, let the children be fed. First. She hears this word first. And it doesn't really matter what else is said. It's a matter of perspective. She hears the word first and she clung on to that word and what she experienced was not loss, but hope. Can you see that? Fellas, I don't know if you've had this experience, right? But it's like you're, you're, you're dating this girl and you want to marry her and you go to her father to ask for her hand in marriage and he doesn't say yes, but he says, not yet. <laughs> You'd be like, but you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> you're saying there's a chance. Jesus says, let the children be fed first. And she lights up and she thinks, so you're saying there's a chance. So she answers in verse 28, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She says to Jesus, I know I'm not one of your children, of promise, but I'll just take the crumbs if that's all I can get, because I know it will be enough. This is a wild response, y'all. As she's saying this, right, because she becomes the first person in the Gospel of Mark to understand one of Jesus' parables. The most unlikely person to understand the mission of Jesus rightly communicates an age old truth. And that truth is this that the blessing given to Israel was not to be kept by Israel for the sake of Israel, but to be used to be a blessing to the nations, a blessing to the world. Like, I don't know how she got this knowledge. And most scholars don't know how she got this knowledge either, but it blows my mind as I think about this woman who's in this pagan land in Syrophoenicia, and she rightly articulates this truth from way back in Genesis 12. When God comes to Abraham, and he says, I choose you to make you my people. I will be your God, and I will make you the father of many nations, and I will bless you so that you can bless the nations and then she embodies this truth from Revelation 7 in and of herself, this, this picture of this throne in heaven where all nations, all tribes, all languages are gathering around the throne of God. She embodies that and she lives this truth from Romans 1.16 that Paul pens later in the Christian faith. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of salvation for those who believe first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. You know, it's bizarre how she would have gotten this knowledge. Maybe it was divinely given to her. Somehow she quotes Pauline theology before Paul even gets a chance to write it. And Jesus said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter." And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. And for Jesus, this mission was complete. But we're not quite done yet. Jesus performs another miracle. Look at verse 31 with me. Then he returned from the region of Tyre, up north, north of Sidon. And he came back through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, not into the region of Galilee, but around the area And he went down to the region of the Decapolis, if you remember the map, down to the third dot. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. A couple things to note. Two stories with a couple differences. The woman brought herself to Jesus, but this man was brought by friends. The woman made her plea known to Jesus, but this man was mute and deaf. He couldn't speak a word. Two stories with a couple of differences, but the same result. They were both healed. Look at verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I love this image. I didn't say this last service, but in my study, like it's, it's unbelievable that, that, that this reality is kind of like a mirror image of the beginning creation in Genesis where God He's creating creation for the first time. And he gets done on the seventh day and he looks at everything and he says, it is good. In other words, I've done all things well. And here in this text, it's Jesus doing a recreation in the lives of people. And it is the people who was the testimony to Jesus saying, you are like your father, you are doing all things well. My, my. As we look at this healing, this is a, a wild image, right? I kind of want to chalk these two stories up into things I never think Jesus would do, <laughs> right? Talk to this woman like this. He's touching dude's ears and spitting on his hand, like touching. Come on. Like, that, that's, that's nasty, Jesus. <laughs> but one theologian put it this way. Jesus, by putting his finger in this man's ears and touching his tongue, was communicating in sign language and symbolic acts in a way that only this man would have understood, and it provoked him to faith. In other words, to a man who was likely outcasted and hadn't been addressed or dignified in that way in a long time, especially by a dignitary like Jesus, this interaction was probably the most he's felt seen in a long time, probably in his whole life. See, Jesus takes the fear behind the commandment of man and turns it on his head to illustrate why he's come into the world. The Pharisees are worried about cross-contamination. But Jesus says, Come to me. All can come to me. Come with your illness. Come with your ailments come, all can come to me, all can receive healing, all can receive eternal life, and all can be part of the family, all can receive a new identity, and all can receive the bread of life through faith. See, the mission of God was to come and break down walls and break down traditions and all exteriors so that he might bring all people to himself and unite you to a new and diverse family. So if tradition numbs us to the mission of God, then what awakens us to this mission of God? It's faith. It's not tradition, but it's faith. See, faith is this great equalizer. It puts everybody on the same plane and it makes it so that salvation comes from faith. Faith. Not tradition. Christian, you are saved by faith. And not only are you saved by faith, you are kept by faith. Not only are you kept by faith, but you are mobilized by faith. To come to Jesus and to go to others, especially those across the aisle who don't think like, act like, or look like you. Hence, Jesus, going to the regions of the Gentiles. See, To be awakened to the mission of God, we need faith. before I close, I want to give us four marks of great faith as signified by Jesus and this sour Phoenician woman, this deaf man. See, great faith is marked by repentance. When you look at the lives of this woman and this deaf man, like they were in the pagan capital of the world everything that they had known, everything that they had needed, everything for life, goodness, salvation was right there in their own cities. Repentance says that they had to turn away from all they had known, the deities they prayed to for healing, for flourishment. They had to turn away, put their eyes on Jesus and say, you are the only one. Likewise, the Pharisees should have had this reality, too, as they're thinking about their traditions. And we have to have this reality, too, as we think about our own. Secondly, great faith is marked by spiritual affection. It's gratitude and thanks and reverence. These things flowed out of this woman. These things flowed out of this man, allowing understanding of Jesus to change their lives from the inside out. Thirdly, great faith is marked by humility. Humility abandons our pride and calls out for mercy. Realizing we're undeserving of the mercy of Jesus, and when we realize we're undeserving the mercy of Jesus and we realize what he came to do to us and the mission we get to be a part of, we get to die to the entitlement that we feel so that we can be motivated and move towards difference. Fourthly, great faith is marked by Trust taking God completely at his word not taking from it not adding to it and resting our entire lives on his promises Christian what if this week we made it a point to lean into these marks of faith letting go of whatever traditions we might hold that is keeping us from truly seeing and desiring this mission of God to see the blessing of Jesus come to us and flow through us to be a blessing to every corner of our city. See, letting go of our traditions means we all get to fall at the feet of Jesus. There is no one too far gone. And if you're here today and you're struggling with your faith or maybe you don't quite believe at all, I want you to know That there is no one, including you, who was outside the promises and benefits of salvation through Jesus by the blood spilled for you if you so choose to put your faith in him. But you have to come to him in repentance, with spiritual affection marked by humility and marked by trust like the deaf man and the Syrophoenician woman with the confidence to say, Jesus, if I could just have a crumb, it would be enough. Let me pray for us. Help me, Father, we love you. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your son. I'm grateful for the mission you sent him on to come here to earth, to put on human flesh, and to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died in order to give us his righteousness so that we can claim salvation. Lord, we're thankful for your son for dying for our sin. And we're also thankful for your son inviting us into his mission. Lord, I pray that you work on my heart and you work on the hearts in this room to understand how we can apply what it looks like to be motivated for your mission locally in a place like Madison. What does that look like? Father, would you motivate us and show us the care that you have for us, the tenderness, the fight you had to get to us when we were pushing you away and yet you still came. Could you give us that heart to reach across the street? Could you give us that heart to reach across the city? Could you give us that heart to reach across the world? Father, we love you. Would you work it in our hearts? It's in your name that we pray. We know you can do it. Amen.